Hi everyone, my name is Kwatu and this is Hacker Public Radio, Urban Camping Episode 8. This is the final episode. I think I said there were going to be 7 or 8 or 9, so this is it, 8, the final one. Um, I, I waited a little while to do this one because I was actually getting a lot of listener feedback. Um, well, actually, to date, I think probably more listener feedback on this series than I've ever had on anything else uh, aside maybe from a Blender tutorial or something. But a lot of people, it seems, uh, kind of found this idea really either intriguing or really similar to something they were doing or whatever. I, as usual, have done a horrible job of collecting all of the things that I was supposed to collect about, you know, what they all said to me. So um, I'll just say that, generally speaking, people have said that it's a really neat idea, something that they would really like to try, something that they intend to try at some point. And two things off the top of my head that people mentioned were, um, one, that hack spaces are really, really good for an urban camping, or would be really good. And I think that is true. I've only been in real life, to one hack space, and that was the one in New York, Rochester, New York area. Um, and it was really cool, and and I can imagine if I was really, really close to a hack space and it was really convenient to get to it, I would probably spend a lot of time in a hack space, uh, probably pay the membership due or whatever, get a key, and just hang out there basically all the time because that would be fantastic. As I said in my last episode, episode 7, that can be also a little bit of a curse because there is that kind of, oh, I'm a geek, I don't have to go outside, I can just sit at my computer all alone and and hack all day. And while that's really, really great for focus sometimes, sometimes it, it's not so good for kind of getting your mind to be thinking out of the box and, and, and just meeting new people, which, you know, I mean, we're human. It's it's pretty important to do that at some point. So um, Hackspace could be really cool. Uh, it could be good for collaboration uh, if, if there are other people hanging out there a lot as well. Uh, it could be good for social uh, events as well if, if it's an active, you know, kind of busy hack space. So that was a great suggestion from from a listener. Uh, another listener uh, told me about something that I'd honestly never heard of before. It's called co-working, uh, and it's um, kind of an interesting thing. I don't really know much about it, but it, it sounds like it's a, a building that offers something called co-working membership, meaning that you essentially, you rent, I think, like an office or, or a you know, a, a space where you can work, do do all kinds of things. You get 24-7 access. This, the guy who told me about this, says that he, he found a place that was $300 a month, and that essentially gets you internet connection, probably, like, telephone connection, I, I imagine. I don't know. He didn't say that explicitly. And a little space where you could, of course, since it's 24-7 access, you could actually even sleep there. And and you get to meet more people. Again, it's, it's not quite a hack space, but it's basically a hack space because there are other people there um, doing whatever people do in office uh, environments or working environments. So it's that sounds really cool. I would I would have loved to know about that um, a long time ago, and I, I'm going to actually start looking for these things in my area because that sounds exactly like what I've been looking for for a very long time. So that's really good to know about. Thank you very much uh, everyone who's commented, um, it's been really great feedback, lots of cool ideas, great recommendations about different um, backpacks, 
coffee cups, all kinds of things. So that's really, really neat. Another thing that I was actually talking to the last known god uh, about from uh, at uh, the Indiana Linux Fest, which I just got back from recently, we were speaking about finding food, you know, just outside, being being self-reliant enough that you can actually just feed yourself from things that you find in, in that strange thing called nature, uh, whether it's mushrooms or just plants or fruit, whatever. Mushrooms you should obviously probably stay away from unless you've taken a class in it, but there are people who know a lot about it and uh, they can teach you that sort of thing. Plants uh, there's a really neat little book that my friend Scarlett got me called The Illustrated Guide to Edible Wild Plants, which was put out by the Department of the Army, actually. Um, but she found it at an anarchist bookstore. Uh, nice little breach of, of logic there. Or not not really, it's just an unlikely combination, I guess. And it was put out by the Lions Press. You can find their site at lionspress.com. And it's it's an, it's a book with, with pictures and everything about all the different kinds of plants that you might find just out there in the world that you can actually chow down on. Uh, And it's a really fascinating book, and I think that kind of survivalism sort of technique, who doesn't need that? I mean, that's just really good stuff to know. It's our planet we live on. We might as well know what we can eat and and not eat. So so check either that book out or something similar to it. Uh, It's a pretty interesting study. But in this episode, we're we're going to talk very specifically about hacking as an urban camper. Obviously, um, the crowd listening to this series, uh, most of them, I think, are probably interested in computing, hacking, things like that. So when you think about it, the idea of being an urban camper, you you suddenly, it's it's almost, again, an unlikely combination because uh, if you're in love with your computer and you want to be on your computer all the time, uh, you want to be on the network all the time, uh, how do you do that? How do you have power? How do you have access to uh, networks all the time Uh, if you're just out and about. Well, of course, in, in today's world, it's it's not that big of a deal, and I've covered some of the things about going out and finding a good network and, and a good place with refillable coffee and just kind of camping out there, and that's definitely applicable, and, and that was, you know, that's, that's generally what I do, but let's talk specifically about what we're doing on the computers while we're doing that and uh, how not to be hacked ourselves, I guess. Now, I'm no security expert. I actually know nothing about security. I just kind of know what people talk about, so I'm going to tell you you what I do uh, when I'm out on public Wi-Fi networks and things like that to kind of give myself a layer of uh, security. But you can, you you should come up with your own methodologies, and you should probably do more research on this and 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 be smart. You know, just kind of use your your best judgment when you're out doing things. So first of all, I mean, if you're out on a public network, that automatically right there kind of restricts what you should and should not be doing on that network. For instance, if you're checking your mail via some kind of antiquated, unsecured logins and things like, or unencrypted logins and things like that, uh, you're sending your password in plain text, all that other good stuff. If you are doing that, you, you really shouldn't be doing that at all. It's a bad idea on a public network. So if you need to check your mail with these uh, protocols. I mean, sometimes the mail provider that you're using might just, they, they may not give you another option. Then save that for later. Save it for your friend's house. Save it for a network that you feel like you can trust a little bit more. Online banking, same thing goes. If you're doing online banking and you're on a public Wi-Fi, you probably shouldn't be doing it on that network at all, period. I would probably save that for a trusted network. Those are just two obvious rules of thumb that nevertheless people kind of violate anyway all the time. So the solutions there would be, well, twofold. Mobile banking, because of 
the mobile phones out there that don't do flash and things like that. A lot of the mobile banking sites nowadays will have an, a mobile accessible site. This is usually a much smaller and simpler version of their typical mobile banking site and, and a lot of times it'll just be that little, you know, it'll be like an m.migratebank.com instead of uh, just www.migratebank.com greatbank.com. So if you direct your browser to m.migratebank.com, then you'll be taken to your bank. I'm assuming we are all knowing that I mean that you need to substitute the name of your, you know, the, the domain of your bank for MigrateBank. So m. you know, whatever your bank is.com, you go there and suddenly you're on a much light a, a lighter weight version of your banking site, which of course does nothing for security, right? But the other thing that I'm going to talk about right now is the part where you're tunneling stuff through more secured means. A couple of different ways to do this. Um, you can set up an SSH tunnel to a server somewhere and then use the version of your browser over on that server. That's what I typically do. That's really the only way, to be honest, I know how to do it. It's very simple to do this, actually, but you do have to have a server. So the idea would be, of course, to set up the server in some safe location and in, go ahead and install some kind of X environment. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be enough, essentially, to give you enough for a nice graphical browser like Firefox. Set that up. Of course, you won't be able to actually see any of it, uh, and you don't even really have to launch the desktop, but it needs to be installed. And then when you SSH into that uh, server, do the SSH with a dash X flag, SSH dash Dash X will allow the X forwarding to um, to occur, and then you can use the Firefox over on your server and do your 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 mobile banking through the SSH tunnel. And since the SSH tunnel, of course, is going to be slower than a normal HTTP connection to your bank, uh, using the mobile version of your bank's site will help you a lot. Better than that, of course, is not doing your banking on public networks. I, I've heard that exporting via SSH isn't exactly the best idea anyway. It's not like the most secure thing in the world. I, I don't know, but it's something to keep in mind. So that's how to do that, though. Now, that brings me to a really important point of um, the fact that you probably need a server. If, if you're going to be doing um, urban camping and you're going to be hanging out on unknown networks, having that server, your own private cloud, essentially, or semi-private because you probably don't actually own the hardware that you are constructing the cloud on, uh, but having a server in some remote location where you can go, where you can access that server from any network via some kind of tunnel, probably an SSH tunnel, uh, it's a really good idea. So, it, you know, you, you can just use that server. I mean, for, for everyday surfing, I'm not saying you need to be on your little private server cloud, but for things like that, for an emergency mobile banking session or, or checking your email when you know that your email may not be the most secure uh, email service around, uh, stuff like that. For a while, at the very beginning of my really serious urban camping um, thing, which was last year, for really practically all of last year, um, I was using, at the very beginning, I was using what I'd been using for a while, which was sdf.lonestar.org. And sdf.lonestar.org is kind of cool because um, it's it's a secure shell um, account. If you pay your lifetime membership of $36, you get a secure shell account. You can SSH in. You can use it as your primary or your you know your secure email address because now you're SSHing in. So you can check all your email there. So it's it's a great little thing to have. It's it's a server. It's a cloud that you can access quite securely and use for a lot of different things. The only problem with it, I guess, is that I found it ever so slightly 
too slow, a little bit slower than I would have preferred, I guess. And I also found it ever so slightly, and I mean ever so slightly unreliable. And I, I don't mean that sdf.lonestar.org is unreliable because it's a great service. I love it and I still have my account and will continue to have my account and continue to enjoy it. But there would be just one or two times where I would try to access them and they they were moving their server. There was a big server move um, last year, actually. Um, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, really, really wasn't. But I just, it, it kind of drove home for me that I, I felt like I needed something a little bit more, something I could really kind of point to and call my own and, and be paying for and say, hey, I want that server to be right there and online all the time, no matter where I was. Um, so doing that meant getting a VPS, a virtually a virtual private server. And uh, doing that alone would have been a little bit costly, perhaps, but I managed to find two, three other people who actually were interested in doing the same thing, having a virtual private server. And so we all kind of pitched in and we all pay, uh, you know, a quarter of the server cost. And we now have our own little private-ish cloud. Again, we don't actually own the hardware, but the server is there. So I guess I don't really use this private cloud so much for, uh, you know, the, the sort of common use of it, like, oh, here's my email and all my online documents and all the things that are important to me that I need to have everywhere. And here's all the things that I that are important to me and that I have, need to have everywhere. I don't really do that. I, I Quite the contrary, I, I keep the stuff that's important to me off of anybody's cloud. Um, so I don't use it for that, but I do use it as a kind of um, a gateway out, out of whatever public Wi-Fi or public network uh, that I'm on and out into the rest of the internet. Setting up the SSH tunnel, of course, is is just as simple as I said. I mean, it's just literally just SSH with the dash X flag if you need the graphical stuff. Uh, Although if you don't, um, and and quite often I don't, you can simply SSH in, use links for your web browsing, use MUT or Pine for your email, and really whatever else you want to do on the cloud. So um, having that is a great idea. Finding a couple of people who uh, you can trust Uh, who can go into a kind of roommate situation with you uh, on this server on the VPS each kind of chip in for the for the for paying the bills uh, it, it, it makes it really really manageable and gets you out of the public network that you'd otherwise just be kind of a sitting duck on uh, and gives you a little tunnel out into the rest of the world and gives you a little bit more security and also kind of frees you from things sort of the more obvious alternatives to to doing that you know things like well I'm using Gmail uh, so it's it's got an HTTPS connection so who cares well no one except that Gmail has all your email anyway so yeah who does care um, so using using the server for that is not a bad idea disadvantage to that so far it's only been uh, speed um, in terms of connecting to that server I've not had a problem yet uh, I've not encountered a public network that blocks SSH access for instance, I, I just don't I don't run into that so far. In terms of um, speed, yeah, I've noticed you know every time I do it practically, I, I notice that yeah, I'm SSH into my server. It it is slow. Um, if you want a really nice server, it's going to cost a lot of money, uh, and you still might not even be getting that great of a connection. It just kind of depends on what network you're on. This particular server that I'm paying part for really really dirt cheap, and it feels slow. It doesn't have a whole lot of RAM. No matter what network I'm on, uh, unless I'm just getting really lucky and I guess none of my other, uh, none of the other people actually on that physical box, you know, not my, not my paying roommates and, and fellow users, but those other people out on that server who have their own little VPS 
partitions. Um, you know, if they're not on it, then I'll, I'll, I'll feel like the speed is okay. But more often than not, I, 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 I feel the, the performance hit. So that's just something to be aware of. Also, doing cool things online, of course, uh, always, there's Tor. Uh, Tor, as you probably already know, I've actually interviewed, I think, well, I know I've interviewed, I think it was for HPR, Wendy, uh, one of the people who is currently with Tor, or was with Tor and is now with EFF, or vice versa, um, or both, but she's a really smart uh, lawyer, hacker type, and it's really cool. So we all know about Tor, it's um, it's it's a great project. Uh, setting it up is surprisingly easy, and I'm talking about setting it up for the more common, the, the most common use, which is, oh, I'm going to browse, I want to be anonymous um, about where I'm coming from, or what my, you know, who and what I am, tap into Tor for that. Um, this isn't really something that I think you're going to need so much from a public network, since public networks, by their nature, are are fairly anonymous. If I'm wrong on that, you know, I mean, don't quote me first of all. But if I'm wrong on that, and if Tor anonymizes you even more than 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 what I'm aware of, then don't listen to me. But otherwise, I don't know. I don't tend to use it from public networks so much as I do from networks that I you know, my friend's network or, or the, the, the work network, that kind of thing where I, I'm there frequently, someone else owns the network, um, I don't want either myself or them necessarily being on the record as having gone to certain places, so you do it with Tor. Tor used to kind of confound me a little bit in terms of setting it up, because you'd see all this crazy stuff about how how many options you've got for the setup, and how to um, how to configure your browser to use it automatically, and all these different buttons and plugins and Vidalia and all these other things that, frankly, I can't be bothered to even figure all that stuff out. So I'm going to tell you exactly how Tor is done on my computer. So my computer runs Slackware, so this is going to be biased toward that. But I mean, in theory, you know, if you listen to all the all the cliches, Slackware is really really hard to use. So if I can do it on Slackware, you should be able to listen to how I do it and emulate it with great simplicity and ease on whether whatever distribution you're running. So on Slackware, this is actually straight out of the Slack build uh, that I use in order to get all this stuff done. So it's not anything that I've actually figured out as much as it is something that I just am copying uh, from the instructions. So it's, it's, it's very, very easy. Um, the, the first thing that I do is install libevent because it's a direct dependent. The Tor requires libevent. So if you uh, install libevent on your computer, you'll have the dependency uh, for Tor. And then you do a group add space dash g space 220, and you call that group Tor. And we're using 220 because it's quote-unquote recommended. I don't know why it's recommended to be that, except that it's, you know, a low number, so it's kind of a system kind of user. I understand that part. I don't know why else it's recommended. Uh, then you add a user. User add dash u 220 dash g, meaning assign them to primarily to this group, 220, which of course is the Tor group we just created. Uh, dash c you can comment, uh, you know, make a comment like this is the Tor user or, you know, the Onion router, whatever. Uh, it's just a human-readable comment for yourself. Dash D slash dev slash null slash S slash bin slash false, and then name that user Tor. So basically, you're, you're creating a fairly powerless user in terms of logging into your system. You, the, the, the default shell would, would not be a shell. It would be slash bin slash false. So that wouldn't do anyone much good if they were able to somehow get into your computer with the username Tor. But Tor can use this username. And you do that, and you run the Slack build, and it installs Tor. Really as simple as that. The newest 
version, I think, is like, I don't know, 1.2.30 or 2.1.30. Something with a 2 and a 1 and a 30 in it. It works great. It's easy to use. Once it's installed, you simply drop down to a command line and you type in the word Tor, T-O-R. If you look, if you open another terminal uh, after you've done that, and then look at the, the, the config file, which at least on Slackware is slash Etsy slash Tor slash Tor RC. Uh, if you look at that, it tells you exactly what ports Tor is running on as the thing that you will interact with. And the default on that right now is Sox port 9050. And the address for that, since it's running on your computer that you're about to use for the connections, uh, it would be Sox listen address 127. 0.0.1. And that's that's almost all you need. Um, there might be some other stuff, but I'm I'm actually fairly sure that that's really all you need in your config file for this to work. So we know that the port that it's using is 9050, and you know that the um, the the IP address that you should be looking for your little Tor server essentially is your local host 127.0.0.1. So just to test all of this out, uh, the first thing to do, and no, it's not finished yet. Don't panic. The first thing that we want to do is just for kicks, go to what's my IP. Dot com or dot org rather uh, what's my ip.org of course will show you what your broadcasting as your address is so in my case right now it's 89.233.82.71 now we've established that now open up um, your preferences in Firefox edit preferences go to the network tab in the advanced section and right at the top it says connection and figure how Firefox connects to the internet and if you go into the settings uh, the connection settings you have four four choices no proxy auto detect proxy use system proxy or manual proxy I use the manual proxy and I simply type in down at the uh, socks host because that's what kind of that that's the kind of port or, or proxy uh, Tor is. It's a SOX proxy. So type in the, for SOX host list 127.0.0.1 and where it asks you what port to look at, type in 9050. Click OK. Now Firefox for this, for right now, until you change it, uh, is using a SOX proxy that is pointing at the 9050 port, which is Tor, which is running on your computer. So the IP address of that is 127.0.0.1. Now if you go to what's my IP Dot org. It's going to take a while because you're going probably all over the world. And there it is. Uh, your IP address, 199.131.62.133. Completely different from what your your other IP address was. And so now, as long as you're using Firefox, you're now browsing the web completely anonymous. Well, very anonymously. Um, of course, Tor will tell you that it's not completely anonymous, quite probably, and you should be very careful. So again, if you're if you're doing this and it's a life-threatening situation, don't listen to this show uh, for all the advice. But that's that's the simple way to get Tor up and running. It's really really that easy. Uh, and and next thing you know, you're you're going all over the place to get to you know whatever site you're really trying to get to, and it's it's quite quite a cool experience and quite a bit slower. So keep that in mind, but it's a good thing to, to know about. The only other real uh, tip I have, I guess, is a very, very simple command called TCP dump. This is one of those commands that people really could, and you know, someone really should, especially on a, a network called Hacker Public Radio. But yeah, someone could and should do an entire series on TCP dump and how to use it. I barely know anything about it, except that if you sit in a cafe and you've got a, a notebook computer that you can put the Wi-Fi card in monitor mode, and you can use the iwconfig command to put it in monitor mode, or promiscuous mode, some people call it. You can uh, use tcpdump to then monitor the all the traffic that 
is flying through the air anyway. All you're doing is instead of sending your own signals out, you're, you're just getting everything. You're looking at everything as it passes. It's really cool. And the the command for that would be TCP dump dash N N V capital X capital S small S. 1514. That should that should get you started anyway. There's a couple of other things you could do, either more or less than that, but that basically turns on a lot of verbosity and it captures all kinds of packets, I guess, and it also sets how in what byte sizes you're capturing it in. That's the 1514 part. It, it's it's a neat command. You'll see amazing things on the in the far right-hand column. You'll just see amazing things. You got to try it in a busy cafe where lots of people have their iPhones and their computers out. Do that, and that'll just fascinate you for for days, really. Obviously, there's all kinds of places you can go from there. Um, that's like the really most basic thing, and that's I'm only giving you the most basics because that's as much as I know. You you now know as much about TCB dump as I do. People will will tell you, oh, you've got to try Wireshark or T-Shark instead of TCP dump and all these other things. And, and I totally agree, but I don't know how to, so can't really talk a whole lot about that. But it is it is fun. I mean, there's there's cool things. Like, you know, you can TCP dump dash S1514, uh, port 80 dash W, uh, you know, TCP uh, 80 dot dump, whatever. Point being that you can, you can tell TCP dump to just capture stuff on port 80 which obviously is going to be all the internet stuff and it'll ignore all the all the other extraneous what what we would probably consider noise i'm sure someone who was really smart and knew what all that noise meant wouldn't call it noise but but there you go so um it's yeah it's it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of filtering that you can do in tcp dump alone i know that there are other programs that filter all this information a lot more effectively and dynamically but it's it's kind of cool because you can just see all kinds of traffic flying by your computer and even if you don't know what it all means it starts to give you a little bit of a better idea of what exactly all that traffic really is all kinds of interesting things to just look at and um for for what you're doing just for fun i don't really tend to i don't pretend that this is like anything evil or subversive at all it's because it's not it's just it's really just monitoring traffic and happily most people are are most sites important sites encrypt their their traffic so you're not even going to see stuff uh, unless you really really know what you're doing and 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 really really try to see it but you will see interesting stuff nevertheless you know idle conversations on on gchat sometimes but not really any passwords or anything i mean unless you're really looking for it i'm not really looking for it i miss all that stuff i think it's just cool to look at these little packet headers and all the and really what makes all this data uh, that's flying through the air to get reconstruct you know to get routed and then reconstructed it's a very cool study, so you should definitely do that. I mean, if you're going to be sitting outside on a public network, you, you kind of owe it to yourself and, you know, to the network to monitor it. It's it's just cool. Now, on that subject, um, there is a cool little device that you can get from a place called MetaGeek. That's M-E-T-A-G-E-E-K. And it's called the Y-Spy. And that, that name sounds a lot more um, subversive, again, than it really is. The Y-Spy is a little antenna, and that really is all it is. It's an antenna that you plug into your USB port. And the uh, device monitors the level of traffic on different frequencies. It is not a full-spectrum analyzer. It's not analyzing all possible spectrum uh, you know, all possible frequencies on that um, 
frequency chart, you know, the FCC kind of runs. It's just monitoring Wi-Fi traffic range. And it does this with two different tools. There's an InCurses uh, interface and there's a GUI interface. And both of them are fairly easy to install on Linux. You have to kind of do it from source code. Well, actually, I think it might be available for Debian or something, but I generally just do it from the source that's included on the on the disk that you get with the antenna, uh, or if you don't get a disk or you don't have a, a disk, you can download it from the project's website, which is a SourceForge project. It wouldn't do you any good without the device, though. It's it's a front end, you know, it's a soft interface for this little piece of hardware. So you plug the USB antenna into your USB connection, it becomes just a, a monitor of frequency traffic, and you can then find out where in in the frequency spectrum uh, you might find more or or less stuff to either monitor or compete with depending on your goal so if it's a setup where you've got lots of choices of which public network you're going to join or whatever, then you can choose your channel accordingly. Um, or if you just want to find out where most of the traffic is, uh, that's a really quick and easy way to monitor where all all the action is happening. Um, it's it's a really fairly quick and, and drastic, noticeable thing. I mean, it gives you a little chart, and the stuff that's really, really busy just peaks up really quick. You'll see it right away, and you can jump onto that channel if you want, or you can avoid that channel if your goal is to uh, stay off the noisy networks and, and enjoy a little bit of peace and quiet. So that's MetaGeek, and the product is called YSpy. Of course, having a little antenna popping out of your notebook could be a little bit suspicious looking, don't you think? Well, interestingly, you'd think so, and actually, a lot of people don't ever, ever seem to notice it at all, and those who do assume that it's a uh, cellular modem. So it's actually not that suspicious. However, that is one thing that you'd want to keep in mind. As I've said in previous episodes, keeping up an appearance of some kind of normalcy is actually really important to an urban camper. You don't want to arise suspicion or um, disapproval or anything like that if your goal is to find peace and quiet and places to hang around and potentially get free food or, or really cheap food or just a place to stay out of the heat or the cold, whatever. So um, having a little USB antenna popping out of your laptop might be fine in some areas. It might not be in other areas. Having your computer on while you're just sitting in your car outside of a residential house, uh, you know, you might not be doing anything at all suspicious. You might you might be sharing their network. You might not be. It just depends. Point being, that kind of thing tends to draw attention to you. So be smart about it, I guess, is what I'm really trying to get to here. Uh, don't. The goal here is not to look like a cool superhero evil hacker. The goal is to be a good uh, computerist, to be a good hacker, to sit down and get your work done, uh, be smart about it, be safe about it, protect your data on the way out to the network and back, and um, learn about it and, and, and study it, and, and that's it. So um, that's what I tend to like to do, and, and I tend tend to be very mindful of, for instance, how glowy my laptop screen is when I'm out at night uh, in places that would raise some suspicion if I'm seen just kind of hanging out for hours at a time outside of some place with a glowing laptop screen or, you know, sitting in some place where, where maybe they're a little bit sensitive about the security of their network and here you are scanning it with um, an antenna poking out of your laptop, kind of asking for trouble. So you shouldn't ask for trouble. Overall, I think that urban camping and, and kind of hanging around places, uh, exploring different networks, uh, exploring different ways to protect yourself from 
people who are smarter than you on that same network and how to just kind of be smart about the way that you are transmitting your data since all of us hackers are supposedly so computer savvy and we all want to protect data and all this other good stuff. If you're if you're unfamiliar with these these basic tools like SSH tunneling and, and I guess Tor and and how to set up a proxy, uh, just little things like that. I don't know. It's it seems like there's a breach of, of what you're saying and what you're doing there. So being an urban camper and, and actually being able to explore how do I implement these things, it's really powerful stuff. And I, I think of, of of all the things of urban camping in terms of learning stuff having a lot of time to really explore all the different things that the hacker culture is always talking about, the community is always talking about, like the security and and all the cool things that you can do on a network and all these things and servers and all that good stuff. A lot of it happened during urban camping for me because I could sit down and I could focus and I had a real, I had a different environment every day if I wanted. You know, I, I had all kinds of different things going on. I'd have different problems pop up quite unexpectedly when all, when all I'm trying to do is sign on to my server to check an email. You know, there'd be some weird issue, um, some random cookie that someone wants to give me that maybe I don't want to accept, an SSL cert check that I'm not doing when I'm checking my MUT mail that maybe I should be checking uh, the SSL. Maybe I should learn how to download that SSL cert and actually utilize it so that I'm signing into the same server every time. Little tiny details like that. You can start really concentrating on them because no longer are you kind of complacent in your own home where, hey, you're wired straight to Comcast or Verizon or whatever big evil corporation you're hooking into to for your internet. You're not you're not there anymore. You're doing cool different things. You're dealing with different network setups. You're you're looking at, at the way one sysadmin or or you know the guy who knows how to make the internet work at one cafe set up the their network versus the corporate setup that some franchise has. Uh, it's really interesting study and it's it's just as interesting as the people that you'll meet when you're urban camping and, and the different experiences you'll have when you're urban camping. The computing side of it, it gets really interesting really fast if you let yourself go uh, along that path and study it and think about it and learn more about it. So that's yet one more recommendation on why you might want an urban camp because the computing becomes a lot more fun. So look into all of those things. Look into a VPS or, or a server that you can use. Look into configuring your, your mail so that you're actually not sending plain text passwords or whatever, or even usernames. Look into getting someplace that you can SSH into. Set up Tor. Start using TCP dump. And email me. Let me know how it's all going. Email me tips. Email me stuff that you've learned. Whatever. And most of all, just remember that urban camping is exactly what I... I didn't realize, but I think all of us actually do realize it. We, I think the hacker community, at least the HPR listeners who I've heard from, have been really, really open to the idea, really, really excited about the idea. And um, I think it's, it's for lack of a better description, it's, it is, it's hacking society. It's hacking uh, the status quo. You're, you're, you're taking exactly what people want you to live your life in, in a certain way, and you're taking that, and, and you're not going with it at all. You're doing what you want to uh, on your own terms, and that's really exciting stuff, because that's how things get done. We do it ourselves, right? We, we change uh, our own lives. We change the way that we do things. We learn stuff on our own, and, um, then we do whatever we want to. And that, that's freedom, I guess. So enjoy that freedom. And um, thanks again for listening to this mini series, the Hacker Public Radio mini series on urban camping. Talk to you next time. One evening, as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. And he said, Boys, I'm not turning. 
I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountain. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmers' trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, the jails are made of tin, and you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by Caro.net. So head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.